Hi there, and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. Clinical medicine has always been taught with a strong emphasis on the master-apprentice model. This relies heavily on clinical educators, many of whom give their time freely. However, many do so without any formal instruction in education and training. Joining me today is Dr. Chris Nixon, a world-renowned educator and intensivist from the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. Among Chris's extensive achievements, he is a clinical adjunct associate professor at Monash University, a founder of leading educational site Life in the Fast Lane, and the lead for the Clinical Educator Incubator Program. He joins me on the program today to talk about the Incubator Program. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Todd. Great. Really great to be here. Thank you. Chris, what was the inspiration behind the Incubator Program? So I guess way back when, um, it's probably getting on 10 years ago, I guess, when the first sort of seed started to develop. And and there were, I guess it was emerging that there was a bunch of us who got involved in education, usually by um, I luck, whether that's, you know, the positive or negative connotations of the word, but you end up being this educator where you're, you've trained as a clinician and now you're in this role where you're doing lots and lots of teaching. It's all happening. You're mostly teaching yourself, trying to figure out how to do it. And then and then you move into a phase where you think about how do you make it sustainable? And then you meet other like-minded people and, you, and they're interested in learning about it as well. And you're thinking, well, how do we do this? And there, there certainly are great postgraduate qualifications that you can do in health professions education. But it really seemed like that there was still a gap. There was something that was needed for trying to build a community of people who can support each other, help bootstrap each other up from um, humble beginnings and um, almost serve like a little bit of a function, a bit like the clinical trials group that um, we have in intensive care where there's this exchange of ideas and that um, sharing of projects and building something, you know, we're always stronger together. So that's where it all, all came from. So when you started to look at what the program might look at, what did you, what process did you follow to establish what the program would be? How did you look at what the deficits that might need addressing might be? So a major, a major component of how we developed this, and I have to say that as someone with a short attention span and um, uh, also a short uh, patientsometer, that uh, the process we went through was uh, very eye-opening for me because we uh, we really came up with a grassroots network and ran these things that we called unconferences, which the idea was to bring in really diverse people from different interprofessional groups, mostly related to critical care and people with an interest in education. But, you know, lots of nursing, physio, pharmacy, um, I think we've even had occupational therapists and speech language therapists along the way who got involved in this stuff. And we called an unconference because we weren't really setting the agenda, maybe broad terms, the topics, but really um, getting people in the room and saying, hey, what is it that we need to do? And we did have some models. So certainly uh, I have to really acknowledge the LEM um, faculty development incubator, which was a massive inspiration for us. And they gave us a lot of real hands-on um, 
know-how and uh, expertise that they helped kick us off with. But really, I think when we came down to what is it we need to do and um, uh, who do we need to involve, it really just came to putting up those feelers at the grass grassroots level. And um, yeah, I was really happy with the process because in the end, it meant we had huge buy-in from across all these different professions and we really felt that we like we'd taken in a lot of different perspectives rather than it just being say a intensivist uh, driven process you mentioned allium there um are there other examples around the world or is this really a novel concept that you've begun here in australia well yeah i think that's probably certainly at the time that was really the only thing that I could find that was out there that um, uh, I guess was more designed as a as a course, but also would grow a community of practice. And that's what we were really looking at doing was that idea of creating a virtual community of practice so that it would be bigger than a one-year course because uh, we really want people to do the course and come back as... Um, as facilitators in a big or small way and just keep that dialogue going. Because the, the, the realisation is, is that, look, we're clinicians. We're, we can't learn everything about education in one year or probably our entire career. So we're, we've got to be in for it for the long haul. So how do we make that sustainable and keep learning together? And I'll go back and read the same paper 10 times and I'll still learn stuff or realise that I've forgotten um, actually some key components and we just change over time so that we look at things with a different perspective when we go back to it. And that's something that I really enjoy about the incubator. Chris, in specific terms, when uh, there's a lot of passionate educators out there who have got no formal training, as you mentioned, what are the sorts of things that the incubator is trying to convey to those people um, and increase skills in certain areas? Where are you focusing? So I guess there's two ways to answer this question. There's um, what I think, and as we were putting it together, and then just recently, uh, Manisa Ghani, who's been involved in the incubator from day one, uh, ultimately did her master's thesis on looking at um, the types of value created by the, this uh, virtual community of practice. And um, I might actually start with what the key themes that she found, which was that the people both, this is actually both participants and faculty, because we have a very little distinction between the two <laughs> roles, to be fair. Um, the key themes really were this idea of experiencing affirmation. So feeling like um, actually what you're doing is good stuff and you're on the right path and it's okay and that you're supported in doing it. Um, the creation of a sense of belonging. So feeling like that you're with your your people, that you're really part of something bigger. Um, one of the other key themes was this thing about just getting new ideas because realising that um, we don't need to invent reinvent the wheel all the time, that there's lots of other clinicians working in similar environments to us uh, that are trying things out and doing things and can share what's worked and what what hasn't. But also then there's the wider health professions, education, literature that uh, is out there that we can call on. And lots of people have had this experience where they felt like, well, you know, taking into account different contexts and things like that, you can actually just almost copy and paste and then modify and and adjust different things and that willingness to just give things a go and realizing that's okay and then reflect on it and then tweak it 
And I guess the last big thing that came out in terms of a theme from Manisa's study was that how it really has been, re it, it's really gone a long way to reframing uh, the participants' views on education. And a typical thing that happens is that um, there's a shift from being maybe more teacher-centric to being more learner-centric, and that's probably the key take-home. So if I was to do this course, what are the sorts of skills and knowledge that I would expect to come away with at the end of the course? Yeah, so we really, um, uh, there was a study many years back uh, by Sherbino and colleagues in Canada where they looked at what a clinician educator is in their setting. And uh, I've really certainly seen that as a bit of a beacon for what we want to try and create as a community. And so at least it's these areas of skills and knowledge that we should all be aware of, even though none of us, uh, certainly I'm not going to be an expert in all these different areas. But that, what that really means is that in, apart from still remaining a, as clinical experts and having the clinical knowledge, which I think is required for our credibility as a clinician educator with a foot in these two different worlds, we really want to be, um, uh, we want to be able to uh, develop uh, best practice teaching and education knowledge and skills and be able to apply that. Uh, we also really want to be having an awareness of education scholarship in all its different forms. So in terms of being able to appraise it, whether it's a journal article or whether it's scholarship and social media, and also kind of either engage in it and do it or support others who are doing it. And then the other aspect really is the programmatic aspects of education, which, um, you know, often we get involved in this because we like teaching, we like learning, we like interacting with learners, but then it gets bigger. You know, then you have to design a curriculum. You have to figure out how you're going to assess whether people are actually learning or getting out of it what you think. Is your program even working? How do you evaluate that? And a key part of education is leadership and introducing change um and so they are all key topic areas that we at least touch on during the incubator who are you targeting in terms of participants who's this for so we've got a fairly um scattergun approach we're we're kind of um rooted in um that we're coming out of the critical care sphere. Uh, so we find that many of us are either in the ICU or emergency areas, emergency medicine areas, but we're, we're, we're a broad church. Anyone who um, faces the same challenges that we have about being a clinician and um, teaching in that environment, we welcome. And uh, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a nurse, whether you're in a tertiary hospital, whether you're in a remote center, we've had people from Fiji, from India, Sri Lanka, Hong Kong. Um, and this year we've got applicants from places like Nigeria and um, other small Pacific islands. So it's uh, Japan. So we, you know, it, it, that's a really great aspect of it is that we just get all these different perspectives. Um, and one thing's for sure, uh, uh the, the there's just immense aspect to learn from other people's perspectives and experiences. And, and that's what's really great about it. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about how the course is structured and how it's delivered? Yeah, so we run over sort of a 12-month program and we um, 
kick off with a soft start sort of mid-March where it's just a bit of getting used to this platform that we use, which is called Slack, uh, which is a very well-established platform. And one of the great things about Slack is that um, for charities and non-profits that they'll they let you have access to um, the professional version of it. So we have quite a powerful platform for engaging in discussion and sharing um, uh, materials. And then we basically, over a 12-month period, we um, we run through, I think it's nine topics now. So we have about three, three um, chill-out months uh, interspersed amongst there, which are well and truly needed. Um, but then we just go through topic by topic. So we might start off with things like, um, you know, the concept of scholarship in the digital age and what it means to be a clinician educator, move into teaching techniques and those other topics that I've talked about. And the way each month works is that we have uh, basically it's four week blocks and um for three of those weeks, we'll have a journal club article and a dangerous question that's shared. So you read the article and you engage in discussion. And um, a and the beauty of it is, is that uh, it, nothing's mandatory. I'm not going to be there ticking off if you've uh, written more than 50 words on the article this week. Uh, it really is self-directed learning. So you, you know, dive into the topics that really resonate with you. But if it's something that's a little bit off-piste or you're just too busy, you can come back to it later. Uh, that's not a problem. And so we have that for three out of the four weeks. And then we also have um, what we call mastermind groups. And this is really probably the core of the whole incubator because we get people in small groups that are diverse geographically and professionally but they'll meet together pretty much once a month via Zoom or a similar platform and uh, just discuss their learning challenges and um, uh, and what's happening in their world as a clinician educator. We also encourage people to work on a project, and that can either be collaborative with people in your incubator or an individual project, usually based with something you're doing at work. Um, and all of the sort of challenges and topics throughout the year are very much focused on, hey, what are you doing at work? Let's just add a little bit of scholarship to it and maybe a bit of peer review and give you some feedback on it. And, and that's really the way it works. I'm sure many out there would be very interested to hear what some of those projects are. Have you got some examples that have stood out over the years? Yeah, so let me have a think. Um well, uh, one that I was involved in last year with the group that I was mentoring, um, uh, we, well, I shouldn't say we because I really didn't do much of the work, but um, I I basically observed and gave my, threw my two cents at it now and then, um, a, a group created a really great online module for mentorship, which I think uh, we all agree is an ongoing challenge uh, given the sheer number of trainees and stuff that we have now and how do you develop effective mentorships, uh, uh, mentoring relationships. And they tackled it with uh, what you need from the mentee perspective, what you need from the mentor perspective. And we we posted that on Life in the Fast Lane. It's free to access and um, it's just a great resource. We always encourage people to try. This is quite a big project, uh, I would say. I usually encourage people to do smaller projects. Um, uh, but whether the project is a success or not is kind of in terms of 
a final product isn't really what it's about. It's about it's very much about the journey and what you you learn along the way. Chris, uh, one of the aspects of the um, the program is the ability to generate a portfolio. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the the idea of a teaching portfolio for me was, I guess, when I was doing some postgraduate um, study in education, uh, I just found it really useful to, um, one, take the time to pause and sit back and say, oh, well, actually, I'm doing quite a lot. I've done all of this stuff. Uh, you know, what's it all about? Where's it all going? Think about what my own personal teaching philosophy is and write a little statement about that, which I think is really useful because when you come back to it in a couple of years' time, you're like, what was I thinking? You know, you, you realise how, how you evolve over time. Um, and then, yeah, and doing some, like, uh, exercises and reflection on different things that just... Like I, I don't have time to reflect on everything I do, but making the time to do it now and then and just highlighting that in my own portfolio is something to reflect on is really, really useful. Some people do a thing where they, like they have a spreadsheet and every time they te do a teaching uh, session or they'll do a quick plus delta on it and say, hey, this is what went well, this is what didn't. And then when they see five times in a row, uh, this still isn't going well, you know, that's a good stimulus to go, how, why is that? Let me look at that. What, what can I do to change it? Um, and I guess, so ultimately, the, for me, this teaching or educators portfolio is really for you. It's a exercise in tracking your own progress and development and, um, and growing as an educator. But it's obviously also very, very useful to um, use it is the basis for if you're going for a job interview to not only say, oh, yeah, I'm interested in education, which, to be fair, everybody who I've ever interviewed says <laughs> uh, that that's the the, the the barn door answer. But my uh, response is always, well, show me the money. Where's the, where's the evidence for that? And if you've got your educator's portfolio, bam, it's, uh, it's there. And not only is it showing what you've done, but also gives you an opportunity to show that you are a reflective practitioner and that you're always growing. Chris, um, for those out there who have been inspired by this podcast and would like to become involved, how do they do so? Uh, yeah, so we have um, a web page on Life in the Fast Lane, um, which basically has uh, all the info that you need, including links to the expression of interest uh, form and a little bit of a frequently answered questions if you if you feel like you need to know a little bit more, but obviously happy to be contacted as well if there's any specific questions. But what our process basically involves is... Um, the official closure of the EOIs is coming up very soon, so February 2nd, uh, but we do give people about a week to upload documents, which is like CV. If you've got a teaching portfolio, that's great, and we like to get a letter of support and your own sort of uh, half-pager um, statement about why, why you need to do this uh, program. And then we aim to let people know by February 26th if we can um, accommodate you next time. And if we can't, then we will move um, uh, hell and earth to get you into the, the next one. Um, but, yeah, so it's just get your expression of interest in and um, we'll try and get you part of it. If not now, then sometime in the future. 
Chris, I'd imagine that you'd be over capacity fairly quickly most years. Uh, is there any thought to spinning this off to enable others to run the program independently of you? Or if somebody's interested in setting up a program in another location, what can they do to do so? Yeah, so we're very, um, you know, as you know, come from a very much a free open access medical education framework. So uh, if anyone needs any materials or whatever, um, uh, obviously happy to share. And I have had over the years a few different contexts, often with people involved in universities trying to develop community of practice and people affiliated with their university and so like clinician educators in that setting. Uh, but yeah, I think it would be a great thing if if um, if uh, there were similar programs. Uh, you would want to do it identically. I think it always needs to be molded to the context. But um, I think there's definitely scope for that, and I'm more than happy to uh, have a chat to people about it and share resources. Chris, it's been an honour and a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations on this program. It's much needed in our profession. Um, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much, Todd. It's uh, great talking to you and hopefully I'll bump into you in person at some time. It's been way too long. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. For more great resources just like this, visit our website at oslacommunity.com. For more information about Osler's CPD Home, visit oslacpdhome.com.au.